0: Tonight is February 4th, 2004. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 19 tonight. There could not be a more controversial subject matter than what we're going to cover tonight. And I want to give the preface that this, this message will not at all be comprehensive of my views on the subject of divorce as we get into that. Because it's Wednesday night, because we have limited time, all of those things, we're going to cover this whole chapter tonight to the best of my ability which means we're going to have to do it in, in brevity. Uh, when we cover the life of Paul, when we do a survey of the book of Malachi, when we dig through the book of Deuteronomy, all of these other places that this Scripture alludes to, we'll cover this in more and more depth. Uh, mostly what we'll cover about it are, are some few misconceptions in the right way. I believe Jesus intended us to read this. I want to encourage you all Throughout this week, throughout your weeks, part of your service to this ministry is to lift up the other ministries we're associated with. We're asking people to pray for us. We're asking people to be concerned about us, to think about us. One thing that we need to do to show God our hearts in the matter is we need to be lifting up people like the Livelys that want to adopt. That organization is called uh, His Kids Too. We need to be lifting up the Williams. They have a, a ministry that is Israel-focused. It's right in line with my heart. And these people are, are not only my brothers and sisters. They're fruit-like. I mean, they're, they're just like y'all. Uh, that's grafted in ministries. You need to lift up King's Harvest ministries in your prayer. Please don't forget to do that. I, I have spoken in the most compelling terms to other ministries that they have a godly obligation to do that for us. It would be wrong if I did not do the same to y'all. And it, I believe it'll, it will cause God to bless us in a big way. So even in seed form right now, as small as we are, this ministry is going to sow spiritually and financially into other ministries. Now, not necessarily just those that I mentioned and maybe not all the ones that I mentioned, but because I want to show God I'm interested in His work worldwide, not just His work in this sanctuary. Uh, we're Praying for vision on the rest of how to finish this room. On that wall, I think I'm going to put a world map with some world theme about the gospel being for all nations. Back here where we have this timeline through history, it will be His story in history. On this wall, a map of Israel in the Middle East and some theme of God's emphasis on His nation. The idea being that we want to create a culture and an environment where people are aware of the gospel of the nations and the gospel that was given to Israel and the story of Jesus throughout history. That's important to me. It always will be. And if you're around me, it can't help but get on you. We're going to be in Matthew 19 now. When you go to coffee houses, when you go see other places in your workplaces around... Be looking for people that God has shown you, or that have a special spark in their eye, people that God might want to use you to touch. Dad and I saw Wendell Stovall today, or maybe that was yesterday. I saw him again tonight. You know, sometimes by serving somebody and loving them, they will see something in you that they're they're curious about. This guy's a Christian, but he does not know what we know about the Holy Ghost. He speaks in other tongues, but he. It's a new phenomenon to him. He's not even real sure what's happening to him. He just knows he's full of Jesus, and sometimes that happens. It's not a chance that I met him in a coffee house and that we hit it off. None of our meetings were by chance. Just keep that in mind as you go about your day. All right, Matthew 19. Uh, we are, of course, coming out of Matthew 18, the last message being the 100 minus 1, leaving the 99, going after the 1 that's insignificant uh, to the world and significant to Jesus. Here we go, Matthew 19:1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Why did the Pharisees come? It says they came to test him. You know, there are times somebody will ask a question, and they ask a question because they have a deep-rooted concern. They really want to know the truth, and they're perplexed. This is not one of those times. They came to test Him. In other words, they don't really care what the truth is. They're hoping to trap Him in something that is difficult. What's difficult about the question of divorce? Well, one is it's rampant in today's society, and it was rampant in theirs. This was never God's plan And yet, it was a reality. The way that Jesus answered this might determine how the crowds thought of him. The same way that today, when you make bold statements about divorce one way or the other, it's a divisive issue. It's kind of like a a litmus test. In our political environment, like right now we've got the primaries going on, they know the question of abortion, question of uh, gun control, all those things are divisive issues that candidates have to take their stand on. Well, they're trying to back Jesus into a corner. And they didn't come and say how they thought it thought of it. They came and asked Him, and they did it for the purpose of testing Him. And listen, they said, for any and every reason. In other words, they're saying, hey, can we, can we divorce for any reason we want to? Jesus says in verse 4, Haven't you read, He replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and He said, "For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." Now, when I say one flesh, we've been trained to think of and a physical act, uh, a coupling. Uh, some we're thinking of intercourse when you say one flesh, but think of this in very literal terms. In God's eyes, when two people married, it is as if they were literally one flesh. That's important. I'll tell you why. So they are no longer two, but one. They're inseparable. They are one and no different than one human being. God sees them as one new legal entity under heaven. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not let man not separate. This is important because when we get into the idea of adultery and we start talking about indecent things, which we're going to talk about today, what that is, literally, and we, when we think of adultery, we think of specific acts. It It's not that. It's not just that. It, it has to do with acts that tear people apart. Literally what Jesus is going to teach here is in the beginning... God's pattern was a man and a woman become one and that God causes that to happen supernaturally. Don't let anything happen then that causes that couple to be divided or torn into two. I mean, that's what he's teaching. That's the pattern. Of course, the Pharisees say in verse 7, Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Before I... Speak about that at all. I'm going to read Jesus' reply. In verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. (laughs) Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has answered this question. He answered it earlier in Matthew already. And you're going to see a lot of these things are cyclical. They seem to come up again and again in his ministry. And that's because they're they're questions that are a a catalyst. They're a firebrand. They were brought upon him, not because somebody won the truth, but because they're trying to divide the crowds. When we think of the law, and we're going to go to Galatians and we're going to read this, and when we think of the Mosaic law... and This is important. We think of this legalistic system that told you what you could and couldn't do. And now we've equated it with God's righteousness. When in truth, the law was put into place to restrain a people that were inclined to sin so that the promises of God could still be fulfilled in their lives. What these guys are saying is the law allows us to give a certificate of divorce And literally the words in Deuteronomy are for any indecent act. The heart or the spirit of that law that was given, and you can turn to Deuteronomy 24, we'll read that real quick. You ever heard it said that the letter kills but the spirit brings to life? The very spirit behind the law is, tell me what I have to do. Or tell me how much I can do without getting in trouble. Let me know how much I can get away with. Uh, Whereas a spiritual principle addresses an attitude of the heart. In Deuteronomy 24, and I have to get there, I'm sorry. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce gives it to her and sends her from his house and it goes on to describe a scenario where this happens to her again he says hey you can't go back and marry this woman in other words once you've given her a certificate of divorce you let the whole world know you two are now separated because of something indecent if she marries again and it happens to her again or if the guy dies you cannot go back and remarry this woman Once you've been torn apart, it cannot be joined together again, is what he's saying. Certificate of divorce only appears a couple times. Another one's Isaiah 50. You can turn back to Matthew 19. I'll tell you about this. Literally, what is going on is the Pharisees are saying, hey, the law allows us to just write a certificate of divorce. They said for any and every reason. That's not what the word says. The word said for an indecent act. That's a generalization, but literally what God is speaking of, and it becomes clear if you survey everything that has to do with divorce, is something that breaks the marriage covenant. Some, some awful, indecent thing that causes a tearing between two people. And there's a reason for that. I said Matthew 19, but go to Malachi. It's just, just by Matthew. Uh, guys, none of this is scripted out tonight. You know, it's been a long week and... I have some things to share with you off my heart, but if we bounce around some in the Scripture, take notes and do your best to make sense of it. This is uh, Malachi 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. By marrying the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob. That's speaking of idolatry, but we're going to get into marriage. Even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. God intended when a man and woman get married that a partnership be formed for one purpose. And here it comes. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and in spirit they are His? And why one? Why this partnership? Why this marriage covenant? Because He was seeking Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. The pattern and where Jesus starts when he answers this question is, guys, remember, take it back to the creation. God made one man and raised up a helper from his own body for him so that they would be one flesh, because the man's purpose was to go forth, have dominion over the earth, and multiply. The purpose for a godly marriage is so that you can bring forth godly offspring. Now, in the course of human history, things can happen that are as the result of people's hard hearts. Indecent acts can occur between two people that are supposed to be partners that prevent them from being able to raise godly children. In that case, it was a concession, not God's will, but a concession for Israel so that their guilt would not be so great that they could not bring forth a Messiah. Look, when something like this happens, when one of you has been unfaithful because you are a sinner... If such an indecent act has occurred that you're displeasing to each other and you cannot raise godly offspring rather than ruin the next generation, write a certificate. Let everybody know you are no longer one and you separate. Now, this was not God's will. It was a concession for a sinful people. This was added because of transgression. So when the Pharisees ask in Matthew 19 and get back there, can you do this for any and every reason? And they're trying to trap him. Jesus takes it right back to the beginning. The spirit of marriage, the reason for marriage, was that two people would become one flesh, one spirit, and produce offspring that recognize and honor God. So no, you you can't divorce for just any reason. God hates it. Truthfully, it's not good to divorce for any reason at all. But here, here comes the kicker. The disciples said, oh, I'm sorry, verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The way that the legalistic church out there has interpreted this is, all right, Gary was once married. Now he's married to someone else, so he's an adulterer. Or if he's not, then Jan is. Or any other couple, and there's... You know, somewhere around 60 percent of our society fall into that category. Somehow these are bad second-class Christians. No, what happened was there was something indecent. it was not God's will, but there was a tearing of this thing that God intended to be one. It's been torn apart. and now when they go marry another, it cements that action. It's another tearing. It's another sep- adultery means a separation of two that are in covenant. Does that mean then that they are always in adultery? That's not what he said. He does not say that they will be living in continuous adultery. He said they commit adultery. If I leave my wife and go marry another, I have caused an awful tearing, is what that means. This was never God's plan, but that does not mean that you're thrown away. It's like any other indecent thing that you might do. I'm not trivializing divorce, okay? I'm not not doing that at all. God hates it. But there are times that because of something that was indecent, some awful tearing that occurred, that for the sake of those godly offspring that should be raised, two people shouldn't live together. Hear this out, though. The disciple said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Now, who does that sound like? Paul. Now, how many of you knew that when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7... And he gets down to verse 7. He was quoting Jesus. I've never heard that said. And all the years I've been in Christ now, I have never heard anybody say Paul was quoting Jesus. They act like it's Paul's own doctrine. It's, it's really not. Paul's views on marriage were just like Jesus. And he quotes these disciples in a loose sense when he says it's better for a man not to marry. It's not that it's better for a man not to marry. It's that it's less complicated. There's no chance that an indecent event can occur and there be an awful tearing that hurts people that we call adultery if you're never bound to another, if your only concern is Jesus. But listen to how Jesus replied. Not everyone can accept this word. What word? The word that is better for a man not to marry. But only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This ought to remind you of Corinthians 7 when Paul says everybody has in fact turned to Corinthians 7. This ought to bring some balance to the teaching that's out there. Corinthians 7. Now, for the matters I wrote to you about, it is good for a man not to marry. Now, you don't have a footnote there. You don't have a cross-reference in your Bible, unless it's a better Bible than mine, that quotes that as something that the disciples said to Jesus. But it is. He didn't invent that. He wasn't making it up, and it was not just because of the times he lived in, which is what is usually taught. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Here you go. Verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am. How was Paul? Well, history tells us and the rest of the scripture tells us that in a spiritual sense, he was a eunuch. But each man has his own gift from God. You know, the same Bible that says it's better for a man not to marry says he who finds a virtuous wife finds a good thing. Her value is greater than precious stones or rubies. So what is the how do you interpret scripture in light of scripture? We know that God wants godly offspring. We know that the very first man was instructed to marry. That this was an ongoing command. So how is it we can say it's better for a man not to marry? The idea is that there is a benefit to both. And God needs both. Every man, every woman has their unique gifting from God. Some are gifted in in a way that makes their devotion solely to God. Others are gifted in a way that makes their devotion to a wife and to God. Whether your devotion is to God alone or to wife and God, there ought not be any awful tearing because of indecent acts. You can no more separate yourself from God because of unfaithfulness and think it's okay than you can a wife. The same people that will condemn you for having had a divorce somewhere in your background do not condemn themselves for their unfaithfulness to God. And it is the exact same principle. You are either in covenant with a wife, and that's your closest covenant, or you're in covenant with God, and that's your closest covenant. Either one that you're unfaithful to causes an indecent act and in, in tearing uh, or adultery. That's why the Scripture says, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. That's not a third party. It could be. It could be bad teaching that tears somebody about. That's saying, since God put... Two things together. Don't you do anything that would break that up? So what is the Christian stance on on marriage and, and divorce and all those things? The Christian stance as I see it, and this is not comprehensive. I mean, there will always be exceptions to these rules. Is In general, Christians ought not be getting divorced. It's certainly not God's plan. But you need to balance that also with there are things that can prevent the raising of godly offspring indecent acts that may warrant divorce which is why he says unfaithfulness okay now this is not some kind of legalistic rule where you say oh well there was this kind of sex but not this kind so that's not unfaithfulness like we had a president a few years ago tried to define those things do you understand what i'm getting at this is this is a spiritual concept god has put you two together Nothing should tear you apart. But if something has occurred that defeats the entire purpose for you being married under God's eyes, sometimes it's necessary. But Paul goes on in Corinthians 7 to expound on this. Says if that happens, if you're joined with someone and they leave you, they're unfaithful to you, you ought to remain as you are right then. And he goes on to say, but if you do marry... and I mean, there's, a, there's a, a whole teaching there. But in any case, we're going to go back to Matthew 19. Are you all all totally confused? Okay. I know one man, only one man in my whole life, but I do know one man that stayed married because he knew God hated divorce, and I believe he made a mistake. Okay? The guy was married 20 years, 20-plus years. His kids turned out weird. One of them blew their brains out. The ones that didn't don't love God today. I honestly believe because of the hardness of one of the hearts in that marriage as a concession, they should have divorced. I hate to say it's the lesser of two sins, but I believe they should have. I don't care what other people judge me in regards to that. It was a mistake for them to stay married. And the reason it was a mistake is their offspring are going to hell in a handbasket. So y'all keep that in mind. Don't ever look down on somebody that has experienced Uh, awful tearing. Their lives have been damaged enough. They do not need a Christian pointing a finger at them. The truth is, they're probably not guilty of anything that you're not guilty of. You just know about theirs. The disciple said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Why on earth would God give Moses the ability to put into place a law that was not in accordance with His divine perfect plan for Israel? Well, that's in Galatians 3. And the reason we're going to go there and apply this to divorce is because we're going to find out it's true of the commandments, which is the next thing we're going to read about after the children. Go to Galatians 3. Again, I'm going to try to cover this in brevity, but I I do want to make sure that you understand it. Verse 19 of Galatians 3. What then was the purpose of the law? And in this law we can include Deuteronomy 24. Okay, that said you can give somebody a certificate of divorce for an indecent act. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. That seed is Jesus. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner to sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Here we go. Before this faith came, before Jesus appeared, before we had the opportunity to have this faith birthed in us, we were held prisoners by the law. Prisoners in what way? Well, prisoners in that when you did certain things, there was a penalty. This penalty act as a restraint for you. So that your sin would not reach such heights that you never would be able to receive Jesus. You never would be able, as a Jew I'm speaking, to receive the Messiah or birth the Messiah. If Jesus, if Moses had not made some provision for divorce because of their hard hearts, there wouldn't have been any Israelites left. Instead, this was a social concern for spiritual reasons. He allowed them to divorce to preserve the people until Jesus came. In fact, the entire law was there to restrain the people until Jesus came. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. King James speaks of it being a schoolmaster, and you guys, most of you are familiar with the term pedagogue that is in Greek that speaks of a household servant that was not teaching but restraining like a jailer until the time where freedom could come. That we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. I say all of that, go back to Matthew 19, to tell you that when the Pharisees asked Jesus, well, why did Moses allow this? And Jesus takes it right back to the beginning and he says, hey, you guys had hard hearts. That's why Moses allowed it. But God's intent was always that two people be joined in the eyes of God and that you produce godly offspring when you put it together with Malachi. It's a clear picture then of why the law was necessary. People were not doing what God intended. They were not accomplishing what God intended. They were not raising the godly offspring. They were not functioning as God intended them to. So he had to institute shackles for them, a law that preserved some, in some way the opportunity for faith to be revealed. That is the purpose of the law. Does that make sense to you all? If you can't see it with divorce in in this setting, it's harder to see it in other areas when when the law looks very good. And indeed it it was good and that it led to Christ. Okay, we're back in Matthew nineteen. We're able to move on from divorce to something more uplifting? Incidentally, in Isaiah 50 and also in Jeremiah 3.3, God speaks of giving Israel a certificate of divorce because of something indecent that she did. Because she was so unfaithful to God. Now, where God told the Israelites, "If once you're divorced, you can't remarry, (laughs) He tells Israel, if you repent, if you'll turn back, I'll marry you again. Because He's able to make her new all over again. Okay, verse 13. Then the little children were brought to Jesus. I want you to also just pick up on this, okay? And guys, I'd have to teach this differently if there were a bunch of people here, but there's not. And I think, I think we can do this in this setting. You remember what I kept emphasizing about divorce and children and the purpose of marriage? It's no mistake that the children follow right after this teaching. See, the emphasis of this whole setting about divorce and how you can treat your wife and how a wife treats... And incidentally, if you read this in all the Gospels, it's very clear. It's not just a husband that commits adultery if he remarries. It's the wife. And the idea is, if either one of you leave the other one and go get married, you've caused an awful tearing. You've hurt somebody. So don't do that. Okay? The children follow after this because the emphasis is on the reason for marriage. And it's that way in all the Gospels. Y'all following me? I see everybody nodding their head yes. Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. I love the disciples and all I can say is it's very clear to me when we read these chapters one right after another. And Jesus has just we've just finished the transfiguration and all the talk about children and all of those things. Evidently, more times passed and there have been other events to confuse them because how they could rebuke these kids after Jesus has just taught after the transfiguration about how to receive kids and used a kid as an example is just beyond me. But I'm also reminded of how quickly I forget the lessons Jesus teaches me at times. So they wanted to rebuke him. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do nothing to hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. If you ever thought laying on of hands was just a charismatic thing, it was just oh well, that's that's the uh, only for that apostolic age, you know. The, the laying on, Jesus laid his hands on. In another gospel, it says he picked them up, took them into his arms. This I think Mark ten. He laid his hands on them and blessed them. So this is no different than we do in the church. There's something powerful about laying hands on people. When he said, let nothing hinder these little children, indecent acts between husbands and wives are not supposed to hinder children. God cares more about those children producing godly fruit because he has more invested and more years in them than he does about your social standing. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. Now, if this guy had lived in our century and Jesus said, obey the commandments, we said, oh, he's talking about the ten. This is a great example, though, that the Jews did not think of the commandments, the law, the instruction as ten because there were over 300. So he says, well, which ones? Does that mean that if my wife is in her menstrual cycle, I can't go in the temple? Is that what we're talking about? Or can I not eat a bug that has uh, wings and a certain number of feet? Or how about fish? Is is that the commandment I'm supposed to keep, that it has to have fins and scales to eat it? No, not that one. Well, how about if I suspect my wife of adultery, we're going to take her to the temple and she's going to take dust off the floor, put it in water and drink it if her abdomen swells and her thigh wastes away. Is that the commandment we're talking about? Do you see what I'm getting at? See, we lump all of the law into Ten Commandments. We think that any time the Bible refers to Ten Commandments or refers to the commands of God or the law of God, it's just the Ten. It's most certainly not. All of the law, the Ten included, were given as a restraint, as a jailer, as a household servant to keep you, not you, but really the Jewish nation, until they were mature enough, until enough time had passed that faith could be born, and Jesus, the seed, the promised seed, could be revealed. That is the purpose of the law. This ought to bring some clarity to you when you read the book of Romans and you get into all this. The law is good, but it's opposed to me. And Are we saying the law is bad? No, certainly not, by no means. I wouldn't have known what sin was except for that. And all of the things that Paul says, you need to put it into the framework of the law is very good. It taught people what pleased God, what didn't please God. And it restrained the people until a more excellent way could be revealed. And that is this freedom in Christ. Does that make sense? So should you go, we, we've said many times, so, so should you put the Ten Commandments on the wall? I don't care if you do or not. So long as you don't think that by keeping them you've earned any favor with God or that you're required to keep them. If you understand, wow, that was a restraint given to Israel to teach them right from wrong and there were penalties associated with it to hold them until Christ came and now we're in a more excellent way, put them up everywhere. I don't want to give you the impression that the law's bad. It's not. It served a godly purpose. It served the same purpose I have right now to lead you to Jesus. That was the purpose of the law. You know? The difference is now we're teaching, whereas the law didn't really teach it more restrained. It was a jailer can find the people. I want you to remember one other thing. And we should have read this in Galatians probably, but didn't. It was until the promise was revealed. Then the law was not needed anymore. Its purpose had been fulfilled, not abolished. It was not thrown away. It was filled to its fullest place. It was done. That's how you can interpret those other things. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass away from it. All of those things. It's fulfilled in Christ. That's just food for thought, but back to this. Which ones, the man inquired? Jesus replied, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. You said, well, he quoted the ten. No, he didn't. He quoted six of the ten. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, where in the law were you commanded to do that? You mean you could keep the entire law and not be perfect? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because it's only he who does the will of the Father in heaven that can be saved. The law simply spoke about what you couldn't do. You remember, sin is defined by James as the good you know to do and do not do. It has nothing to do with the things that you uh, commit that you weren't supposed to. But that's what the law has to deal with. Don't give false witness. Don't steal. You know. Don't covet. Whereas a Christian's life is not consumed by the things you're not allowed to do. It's consumed by the things you know you are supposed to do. Matthew 7 says it's only he who does the will of God who enters. Does that make sense? These are just some foundational things y'all ought to be picking up so that when you read the book of Romans, you're not totally confused. So that when you meet Messianic Christians that love the Lord, that we can learn much about the Jewish nation from, provided that they've been there and they're, you know, they didn't just you know, ten generations back decide they were a Jew. You're not confused when they don't understand the relationship of the law. See, we're approaching this from a totally different angle. We've only ever known freedom. So it's not it's not easy for us to be or it's not hard for us to be free from the law but somebody that's been taught that the law is supposed to be their god all of those things this is a difficult concept you need to understand it from both perspectives So Jesus says hey go sell everything you have if you want to be perfect does that seem harsh You can say yes or no I'm curious does that seem harsh Seems kind of harsh huh you know? I mean, what if you wanted to follow Jesus? You said, hey, what do I need to do? And he says, why are you calling me good, man? He says, only the Father's good. That's what Jesus told him in another other Gospel. And he says, well, alright, well, what do I have to do to be saved? And he says, you've heard. Follow the commands. Well, well, which ones? And then he quotes six of them and you can see he's kind of turning his back at this point. And he says, well, I, I've done all that. What else? He says, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor if you want to be perfect. You know, it's doesn't that seem kind of harsh? Look at Mark 10. It's not harsh. I thought it was harsh. I thought it was harsh always till I read Mark 10. Uh, verse 20. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. I kept all the law. I kept it since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have tre- excuse me, treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You can keep the requirements of the written code. Not really. You're, I mean, you break one, you've broken them all, and you know it was given because they were lawbreakers, but you can try to do that. And you still can't obtain the righteous life that God desires because the thing that God desires is for you to discern His will and do it. The law requires you to not do things. And if you do, there's penalties where the Spirit compels you to do things. Most of you know this is what I teach about the difference between a sheep and a goat. Jesus was loving him. He was showing him a more excellent way. Okay, so you're not an adulterer. You're not a murderer. You honor your father and mother. Let me tell you what you really need to do. You need to be willing to give away everything you have to follow me need to be willing to give up your life to follow me. Now, I'll I'll be honest. If that was the way the gospel was presented to most churches, there would not be a thousand baptisms a year of people that really are not Christians. See, if that was what you were presented with, instead of, you know, with every head bowed, with every eye closed, lift a pinky, crawl on your belly down here, hide behind the pulpit, we'll give you a gift certificate and donuts in the back room. If, if that was not the way that it was presented, but if it was presented like this, it's not enough for you not to sin. You have to do the will of God. You have to be willing to give away everything you've ever had. You have to be willing to be destitute. You have to be willing to walk around this land like an alien and a stranger. If that was the gospel, would you have been saved? If you wouldn't have been, you will never stay saved. Because that's what's required. If you want life, you have to lose yours. Jesus looked at this young rich man and loved him. That's why he told him that. He wasn't being mean to him. He was loving him. We think we're loving people when we don't tell them the hard stuff about the gospel. Hmm? All right, back to Matthew. Take me a while to get going, but we'll get there. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect... Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? He's got more of his life to give up. That's why Jesus said, hey, it's the sick who need a doctor. The healthy don't think they need a doctor. That's why also the Bible says the poor are rich in faith. If you have less to lose, it's easier for you to lose it. Think about this in worldly terms for a minute. Not that you would better relate to worldly terms. Uh, You all are so spiritual, but I've heard that there's a show out there called Fear Factor, right? On this show... These people won a bunch of money and they were in Las Vegas. And then they had to bet $50,000 on a single hand of blackjack. Is it easier for you to bet $5 on a card game or something of chance than it is 50000 It should be. Yeah, it is. Why? It's the same principle. You're either going to win or you're going to lose, right? Because the more of something you have, the harder it is to give it up. The more precious it becomes to you. For a rich man, his life consists of what he has, who he is. It's hard for him to lay all of that down, but it's required of him. For the poor man, that's why you can be proud of your your humble circumstances. It's easy for you to be consumed with Jesus. You're not consumed with the world. For a poor man, it's easier to be rich in faith. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? if it requires you to give up everything you've ever had to follow, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation will never come without the Spirit of the Father, as John 6.44 says, drawing you. It takes God to come into you to cause you to do the will of the Father. No moral man, no Mahatma Gandhi, No Siddhartha, no Buddhist anywhere, no Mormon, no Jehovah's Witness will ever accomplish the will of God. They may do good things, but it takes the Spirit of God in you to give up your whole life for God's kingdom. Peter's beginning to get it now. I'm going to point out Peter getting it whenever I can because so often he speaks up when he doesn't get it. You know, Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Peter's beginning to realize, wait, wait, what you told the rich young man, we've done that. We gave up families. We gave up households. We gave up our livelihood. We left our father's nets, and we're following you. Every Christian has to do that. These were not a special select few. They were just the first. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. At the renewal of all things. Guys, you give away everything you have now. Guys, you be willing to lose your life now. And there is a day when all things will be renewed or restored or saved. So when you've lost, you've experienced loss in this life because you value the kingdom that is coming. You'll be rewarded in that. These guys, they weren't kings on earth. You know, they didn't give up kingdoms to follow Jesus. They gave up fishermen's nets and humble circumstances. But they're rewarded in a disproportionate fashion because God blesses more than you could ask for or imagine. This is why if you give somebody in Jesus' name a cold drink of water, you're rewarded many times over. See, right now it may seem disproportionate. You have to give up your whole life just to follow Jesus. But in the life to come, it's also disproportionate. You sowed only a little. You only gave up a house in Denham Springs. Or you only gave up your dreams to be a coach. But what you get is a kingdom that you rule. Because when you've been faithful over a small thing, he will add more to you. That's a a biblical principle. At the renewal of all things. Turn to Job 14.14. We're almost done here. Renewal of all things. Job 14.7. At least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again and its new shoots will not fail. The Bible teaches you that nature itself pours forth speech day and night that is understood by all men. Well, Job's looking at a tree. He says, man, if it loses everything it has, it sprouts again. He begins to dwell on that. Because as in Christ, the same spirit that is compelling us was compelling Job. When we lose everything... We do sprout again. Watch how Job ends up the conclusion he comes to. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soil. Kind of like you're buried. Yet at the scent of water it will bud. Water like spirit. And put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or a riverbed becomes parched and dry. So, lie, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count My steps, but not keep track of My sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag, and you will cover over My sin. He goes on to say, in another place, He will stand upon the earth and with the eyes of His own flesh. He will see the Lord. I say all of that to say there is a renewal coming. And if you are willing, as the rich young ruler was not, to throw away everything to follow Him... There's a day coming when even your body will be renewed. That's how a martyr can stand there before a crowd that is tearing his body apart. He knows he's throwing it away for Jesus and it will be restored to him. See, if we could ever get out of our carnal mentality of trying to preserve what we have and get into the mentality of everything I have belongs to God and he can have it all back right now in his service because it will be renewed to me one day. When you try to hang on to what you have, when you try to protect and, and you're unwilling to do the things that you know to do because you've made something comfortable for yourself, you're showing utter contempt for the very purpose you were saved, which was to lose your life in Him, that He might renew His life to you. At least that's what I got out of it. Alright, Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses. Get this. Listen to what these guys were doing. Left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children. You mean God would have you leave your children to follow him? Oh, absolutely. And if you won't, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. Or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Whatever you give up in this life to follow Jesus, you will get back a hundred times as much and eternal life. Now, there's a whole group of people out there teaching that you get back a hundred times in this life. Well, no doubt, seek first the kingdom of God will bless you. But it's not this life we're to be focused with. We're to pass through this land like uh, aliens and strangers. We're seeking a city whose foundation and architect is God. And it's coming this way. It's one thing to say you believe it. It's another to act like it. See, you can say you believe it, but when it comes down to... You being without anything because you're believing that it's the will of God and that He will restore it to you. Do you shrink? Or do you advance? But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Get that. You want to be first in the kingdom of God? You need to be last on this earth. You want to be first in the kingdom of God? You have to be last in the kingdom of the world. You want to be first in the kingdom of the world? You want people to think well of you? You, you want to advance by this world's standards? You're assuring yourself a last place finish in the kingdom of God. So we need to get our priorities right. We need to be willing to forgive each other. We need to be willing not to let things separate us that will hurt our children. We need to be willing to esteem the the children higher than ourselves love them, nurture them so that they will receive all that God has for them we need to be willing to lose everything that we have in this world so that we can do something for Jesus and then we will be rewarded for it if that's not the attitude if you can't leave mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers and children for Jesus you're moving yourself right on down that kingdom list towards the last place Anything that you place as a priority above God, you're in danger of God removing it or removing you. If he removes it, it'll be because he loves you and he wants to be first in your life. If he removes you, it's because you refuse to put him first in your life. So you eliminate yourself from the kingdom. Is that a hard word? Well yeah, sure it is. Jesus said only if you can receive it, in fact. You know? Some people it is their gift from God. Does that mean that it is easy for them to be? To live a a celibate life? No. Not any easier for them than anybody else. But it is their gift from God to do so. Well, if it's their gift from God, they must not burn with passion. Are you kidding me? Anybody that was ever walked this earth that is a normal physiological person has certain desires. But it's their gift from God to do so. Those of us that are married, I'm just reflecting on the chapter as we close. Those of us that are married, we have a whole different burden to carry. May not be that you fight against desires, but now you have to figure out how to please a spouse and Jesus. You have to figure out how not to be separated because God's put you together. But it is your burden to carry. Those of you that were made a certain way by men, Jesus accounts for that too. And it, you should consider it a gift from God. You know? does not matter where you are in life, you need to consider your life gone and you receiving His life. That's a kingdom principle that will weave all the way through this Bible. We're going to pick up in Matthew 20 with the parable of the workers in the vineyard on Wednesday. Sunday, I'm not sure what we're preaching, but the P. Rose will be here, and the emphasis will be on worship. So I love you all. I hope you gleaned something from this. hope it wasn't too late, too hard, and you weren't too tired. Uh, pray for us through the week. Pray for the people that are being joined to this ministry, and pray for those other ministries I told you about. And y'all stand up and we'll pray now.